Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. Bibles this morning. We're going to be back in James chapter 5, and we're going to read this time verses 15 through 18. And when you get to James 5, uh, 15 through 18, stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us, and we thank you for the way that we can speak to you. Father God, we ask that your word would give us power, that your word would give us strength, that your word would give us courage. And Father, we ask that your word would also bring conviction. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Last week we started talking about uh, what this text means for us in terms of what our responsibilities are toward one another. We covered James 5, 13, and 14 last week. And, and we, what we learned is that the sick are to call for the elders of the church, and then in turn the elders are to anoint them with oil and pray for God to heal them. Remember that James gets his ideas about prayer, he gets his ideas about healing, he gets, in, he gets his ideas about ministry from Jesus. He grew up with Jesus, he followed Jesus, and so what, G, what James learns is that the sick need to be anointed with oil and prayed for by the elders. And of course we saw in Mark chapter 6 verse 13 where Jesus and his disciples went out. They prayed for the sick. They cast out demons and they anointed them with oil. And if we, and if we don't know what to pray for whenever we pray for the sick, then we should pray for an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. We talked about that last week as well. We talked about how there's no sickness in God's kingdom. There's no death in God's kingdom. The kingdom of God resolves all the complications and the tensions that we will ever experience in life. And so we talked about the position for prayer. We talked about what what it means to be in a position for prayer. What it means to call on God. What it means to pray for the kingdom. And so this morning we're talking about the promises of prayer and the prime example of prayer. 
And so if you remember the outline on the back of your bulletin, that you'll find that that's been repeated in this week's bulletin as well. We're finishing up those last two points. And so this morning as we look at the promises of prayer, let's first look at verse 15. What's the promise given here? If we look back at verse 14, he says, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now look, look at the promise in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will what? The prayer of faith will what? Save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That's clearly what that verse says. Now, it's easy to try and dismiss what James is saying here. Surely he doesn't mean what he says at face value. You know, we, when we read the command to pray and anoint with oil, that's one thing. But then James says that the prayer of faith will save the sick. And then he says that the Lord will raise him up. Well, maybe it's metaphorical language. Maybe James is saying that the Lord will raise him up above his circumstances, right? You know, it's easier to deal with the Bible if everything's just a metaphor and allegory. It's, it, it's easier just to dismiss everything. But we don't get that convenience. There are metaphors and there, there are allegories in the Bible, but this is not one of them. That's not what's being said. James is stating a claim as fact, and we have to figure out how to deal with it because we know that not everyone we pray for will be healed. So what is it that prevents healing? This gets talked about in a lot of other theological camps and theological circles. You know, what is it that prevents healing? Does God not heal anymore? Well, if God heals, if God still heals, why doesn't he do it all the time? And some people say, well, it's because people have sin in their lives. And <coughs> sin brings death and sin brings sickness and chaos. And, and there's a certain degree of truth to that, but it's not all that callous. So what is it that can prevent God from healing? Well, first of all, God might want to use sickness to show the power of his glory. And we have an, we have an example of this in John chapter 11. The, they come to Jesus and they tell Jesus that Lazarus, his friend, is sick. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 11 verse 4? He says, he says Lazarus is sick. Sickness was not unto death but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified in it. So Lazarus, Lazarus died from his sickness. He died from the very thing that Jesus said that God wanted to get glory out of. And so Lazarus died, but then Jesus goes and raises him up. So God may want to use your sickness to show his strength in your healing. God may also want to use your sickness to show his strength in your endurance. And we have an example of this in Scripture as well in the book of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Matter of fact, I'll just go back and read it. I, I, I was just going to reference it, but I'm, I might as well read it while I'm here. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul talks about at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about how he's, how he's had all these ecstatic visions. How he's had these experiences with God. And he talks about how he could talk about these things. How he could boast in these things. 
But then look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. So what he's saying is, you know, in, just in case I get arrogant, just in case I get prideful by the amount of visions and revelations that I have, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so Paul talks about how this thorn in the flesh was given to him by Satan to keep him from exalting himself. Some people say that this thorn in the flesh was an, uh, was an ailment. It was a sickness. It was, it was his problem with his eyes and his vision. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. It could have been a sin that Paul kept, kept dealing with. But Paul says regardless of what it was, it was given to him. And that it was a messenger of Satan. Now this is what's interesting to me. This is what's really interesting to me. Satan wants you to be prideful. Satan wants you to exalt in yourself. But Paul says here that this thorn, that this thorn in the flesh, that this messenger of Satan was given to him so that he would not exalt in himself. So why is it that a messenger of Satan comes to Paul to get him to not be prideful in himself? Isn't that what Satan wants? It's because God allowed it to happen. We see a prime example of this in the Old Testament, the story of Job. Job. God tells Satan, have you tried my, my servant Job? And Job says, well, I'm going to take everything he has. I'm going to take everything he has, and when I take everything he has, he'll turn his back on you. God says, no, he won't. Go ahead. Do it. Touch his flesh, but don't kill him. So he touched his flesh. He took his family first. His children died. His wife cursed God. And then, and then boils came up all over Job. He had health complications. He had health problems. And he still didn't curse God. And all this Job did not sin. That's what the Bible says. And so Job experiences a messenger of Satan. Job experiences a thorn in the flesh. And that's what Paul, that's what Paul compares his experience to, I believe. Paul says that he's given this messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh, so that he would not exalt himself, but rather so that he would find his strength in God. And in all that, in all that, Jesus speaks to him and says, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. We don't like the idea of being weak. We want to be strong. We want to be powerful. We're men. Right? Guys, we're men. We want to be strong. We want to be powerful. We want to, we want to reach the top shelf when our wife can't reach something. We, we want to... You know, we want to pick up heavy things. We want to un unlock the, the, the lid off the jar of pickles. Right? We want to be the hero. And Paul says, I don't need to be the hero because Jesus is the hero. And so there's an example there 
how God may want to use your sickness to show His strength in your endurance. It's also entirely possible that God wants to show you His strength in your sickness and in your weakness. You may not be able to endure the kinds of trials that you face, but the power of Christ that rests on you can conquer all things. I'll say that again. You may not be able to endure the kinds of trials you face, but the power of Christ that rests on you can conquer everything. And we, we have this idea. We, and we, I'm sure some of us have even said this, or we've, we've said it to other people to try and give them comfort. You know, we say, well, God won't put anything on you more than what you can bear. God won't give you more than you can handle. That is absolutely not true. That is absolutely not true. If we go back to the, if we go back into 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I was going to use this example later and I may come back to it. But if we go back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, actually I don't want to go there. I'll save that for later. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's a couple different examples. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is talking about Israel. He's using Israel as an example. He says, these things have been written so that these would be examples for you, for you not to be idolaters, so that you would not fall into sexual immorality. And we get this idea that God won't give you more than you can bear from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Because he says, no temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with, but with the temptation you will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. How, so here's the thing. We, we cut off the last half of the verse. We just read the first half of the verse where it says that no temptation has, over, has overtaken you, Except such as common to man, who will not allow you to be, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Here's a question Where does your ability to withstand temptation come from? Does it come from you? Does it come from your strength? No, it comes from God. God will always give you more than what you can handle, God will always give you more than what you can bear. But he will give you strength to endure it. And this is what Paul says later in 2 Corinthians, when I, you know, we'll come back to it. He says, we were given a sentence of death. He's talking about all of these trials that he went through in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, we were given a sentence of death. That's more than what Paul could handle. That's more than what I could handle. It's more than what you can handle. But who can handle it? Jesus. And Jesus will be right there with you. Amen. And so, the power of Christ that rests on you can conquer all things. And so what Paul says is that I was given a sentence of death. And so what, what do you do when you're given a sentence of death? You trust in the God who raises the dead. And so God might want to use sickness to show you his strength. 
God also might want to use sickness to bring the sick to a place of repentance. If we go back to James chapter 5, and we look at verse 16, he says, Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So there's no way you can read that verse and walk away not seeing that James connects healing to confession of sin. So what does James mean by that? Remember two weeks ago when we finished 1 John, we talked about how John talks about how there's a sin that leads to death and a sin that doesn't lead to death and, and how John connected all of that with prayer. Do you remember what we said about that? What we said was that unrepentant sin, treasured sin, cherished sin, that all of that was an obstacle to prayers being heard and answered. The sin that leads to death is the sin that refuses to be dealt with. And that's what James is saying here. But, here, but let me be very clear. What's not being said is that if you sin, God's going to get you with pneumonia or something like that. But what is being said is that if you're in a state where you're holding on to sin and you refuse to repent and you refuse to seek reconciliation with God, then you leave yourself in a vulnerable place because you cut yourself off from the one who seeks to heal and restore you. And it's getting quiet in here. So what does James mean when he says to confess your trespasses to one another? Does he mean that every time you commit a sin, you've got to call me or you've got to call one of the elders or somebody else and tells, it, and tells us you've sinned? No, I don't think that's what it means. I think the clue is in the word trespass. James says, confess your trespasses to one another. Now, if you put up a sign on your property that says no trespassing, what does that mean? Ultimately, it means you don't want someone infringing upon you without your permission. It's an offense. When someone sins against you, they're infringing upon you. So if someone steals from you, if they slander against you, if they treat you terribly, then, you're in, then they're infringing upon your person. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6.14? If you forgive men their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. James is saying that if you know you've wronged someone, if you know you've wronged someone, then confess it so that you have an open confession to God, so that you have an open connection to God. So that's the promise concerning prayer. Now let's look at the prime example of prayer in verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So two things we have to see about Elijah. Number one, Elijah was an ordinary man. We sometimes read the Bible, and we think, well, that doesn't apply to me, or I can't do it because I'm not one of the apostles, or I'm not one of the prophets. All that stuff was, was just for them, right? I can't pray prayers like that. I can't walk with God like they could. Those are all lies from the pit of hell, and they smell like smoke. James wants to quell those lies by telling us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a dude, like you and me. He was a bro. 
right? I'm a, you know, here's the thing. I'm a cultured guy, so I kind of keep up with what's going on at the Vatican sometimes. Obviously, I'm not Catholic, so it doesn't matter much in the long run. But it's religious news that I keep my ear to the ground on. And so every once in a while, I'll say something interesting that the Pope said or did, and I'll, I'll look at Brittany and I'll say, hey, did you hear what the Pope did? And like clockwork, as if I've never heard the phrase before in my hardcore, as if I've never heard the phrase before in my life, my hardcore Protestant wife, what do you say, dear? He's just a dude. He's just a dude. <laughs> Who cares? Amen. Like, I know he's just a dude, but it's still interesting. <laughs> my wife is a hardcore Protestant. She would be right there alongside Luther, I'm telling you. So, that's what James is saying here. Elijah's just a dude. He's a common man. But look what God can do with common people. And so Elijah was an ordinary man, but Elijah also prayed extraordinary prayers. Look at the last half of verses 17 and 18. Notice that after James says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, notice that the text says that he prayed earnestly. He doesn't pray some laid-back prayer where he says, you know, Lord, it would just, it would just be nice if it didn't rain for a while. That, that would really show them. He went to the throne of grace and he poured out his heart in the courtroom of heaven. And when he did that, the heavens were shut up for three and a half years. And they didn't open back up until Elijah went to the throne room again and pleaded with God to pour out rain over the land. Elijah wasn't passive in his prayer. He was active. Another thing I think we should take note of is that out of all of the miracles that Elijah worked and participated in, why does James mention this one? Now James was just talking about healing someone, right? James was just talking about healing for people. He was talking about anointing them with oil and God saving the sick. Why wouldn't James use an example of healing from Elijah's life? Because after all, there was an instance in 1 Kings 17 where a widow's son died, and Elijah stretched out his body over the widow's dead son. He prayed, and then the text says that the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. Now that would be a great example to talk about here. So why does James talk about the drought for three and a half years and then the rain? Here's why. Pay close attention here. It's because James's main emphasis here in this text is not healing. James talks about healing. James mentions healing. But the main text is not about healing. It's about prayer. He talks about healing, but healing isn't an end in and of itself. Prayer is. Namely, prayer that drives us to rely upon God. At the end of the day... Divine healing doesn't mean anything if we think the goal of prayer is just to get God to do cool stuff for us. I'll say that again. At the end of the day, healing doesn't mean anything if we think the goal of prayer is just to get God to do cool stuff for us. God's not some genie sitting in a lamp waiting for us to rub the lamp so he can appear and make all of our dreams and wishes come true. This is part of why confession is so important in James' theology of prayer. Prayer isn't about what God can do for you. It's about how God, through prayer, can shape you, can mold you, and make you into what He wants you to be. 
I mentioned Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians 12 earlier, but in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul was talking about the troubles and the complications that he experienced during his missionary work in Asia. And he says in 2 Corinthians 1.9 that we have the sentence of death in ourselves. Now that's key. If you look at the text very carefully. He says we had the sentence of death in ourselves. So what do you do when life gives you a death sentence? What do you do when you find death in yourself? What do you do when you can't provide for yourself? What do you do when you can't climb out of the, out of the pit you got yourself in in the first place? You call on God. So when life gives you a death sentence, call on God who raises the dead. G.K. Chesterton. If you've never read G.K. Chesterton, you need to read G.K. Chesterton. He had this very profound insight. Someone asked him one time, he said, Dr. Chesterton, they said, do you, do you think that the church, do you, do you have any kind of fears about the church? Because the church seems like it's dying. You know, there's, there's more unbelievers than ever. There's, you know, chaos is... Chaos is rampant. Immorality is rampant. Everyone is going their own way. Are you worried about the death of the church? Now, of course, this is over 100 years ago, in the late 1800s, in London. And what did Chesterton say? He said, the church has always died a thousand deaths, but it always resurrected because it always knew a God who knew the way out of the grave. And so we look around in our society, and we see moral chaos. We see destruction. We see the we see the Black Lives Matter protesters going in and destroying cities, and we see all that. We see that Chaz nonsense going on. You know, they, they blocked off that area, and it's, they just burned everything to the ground. All these protests have taken place, and we see we see immorality is rampant. They've got they've got drag queens on kids shows reading stories to kids. You look at the world the way it is and you think, well, how? what, is, what does the church look like in, in this day? Where are the believers? Where are the godly people? Where, where are godly men and women who have prophetic voices? Well, what if the church dies? Then the church knows the way out of the grave. The church has always known a God who knew the way out of the grave. Listen. We don't need to fear because of the complications and, and because of the conflicts that we experience in our culture. We need to have more faith than ever. Our faith needs to be stronger than ever because we know a God who knows the way out of the grave. Everything looks rampant. And I, I told Brittany this the other day. You know, we, you look at the protesting, you look at you look at all the pride parades and stuff like that, and, and you think, well, that all that stuff is rampant. What does all that mean for the church? It's the let me tell you something. Let me let you in on a little secret that nobody else will tell you. It's the dying breaths of a culture that's folding in on itself. History, it has history is repeating itself. This, all this stuff is what happened before Rome collapsed. And you know who had to rebuild culture after Rome collapsed? 
the church. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I don't think that's just some super spiritual allegory either. I think after the, I think after the worldly culture folds in on itself, the church is going to be left to rebuild culture, and that's when we're going to see the ushering in of the coming of the Son of Man. Amen. Right? Because every, like everyone who teaches end time stuff, and I know I'm getting off my notes, but listen, everyone who teaches end time stuff, everyone who teaches eschatology, the book of Revelation, they pull out their charts and graphs, and they say, oh, well, it's going to get, oh, the world is getting worse, the world is getting worse, and, it, and the moral chaos is just going to be at an all-time high just before Jesus comes back. I don't believe that nonsense. I believe things are getting worse, but I think they're going to be better. Because I think what you hit, I, I think once you hit rock bottom, the only place to go from there is up. And I think human society hit rock bottom whenever they killed Jesus on the cross. Because that was the most morally evil thing humanity could have, do, could have done. Because Jesus was the only sinless person who ever lived. Jesus was the only sinless person who ever lived. And yet they gave him the sentence of death. It only goes up from here. That's what I believe. Anyway. So when you feel like life has given you a death sentence, trust in the God who raises the dead. At the end of the day, our circumstances are meant to generate trust in God's providence over us. And when we express our trust in God through prayer, God gets glory. And we can see him at work. Let's pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, this word is for us this morning. Lord, I rambled and I ranted and I raved, but Lord, you're in the rambling. You're in the rant, you're in the rave, you're in the righteous indignation. Your word doesn't go forth void. And so, Lord, we ask you to use this word this morning. Use this word to direct our paths. Use this word to give us grace. Use this word to increase our reliance upon you. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.